Chapter Twenty A of the Golden Bow, Sections One to Four. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bow by Sir James Fraser, Chapter Twenty, Tabooed Persons. 1. Chiefs and Kings Tabooed We have seen that the Mikado's food was cooked every day in new pots, and served up in new dishes. Both pots and dishes were of common clay, in order that they might be broken or laid aside after they had been once used. They were generally broken, for it was believed that if any one else ate his food out of these sacred dishes, his mouth and throat would become swollen and inflamed. The same ill effect was thought to be experienced by any one who should wear the Mikado's clothes without his leave. He would have swellings and pains all over his body. In Fiji there is a special name, Kanalama, for the disease supposed to be caused by eating out of a chief's dishes or wearing his clothes. The throat and body swell, and the impious person dies. I had a fine mat given to me by a man who durst not use it, because Thakombau's eldest son had sat upon it. There was always a family or clan of commoners who were exempt from this danger. I was talking about this once to Thakombau. Oh, yes, said he. Here, so-and-so, come and scratch my back. The man scratched. He was one of those who could do it with impunity. The name of the men thus highly privileged was Nandukani, or the dirt of the chief. In the evil effects thus supposed to follow upon the use of the vessels or clothes of the Mikado and a Fijian chief, we see that other side of the god-man's character, to which attention has been already called. The divine person is a source of danger as well as of blessing. He must not only be guarded, he must also be guarded against. His sacred organism, so delicate that a touch may disorder it, is also, as it were, electrically charged with a powerful magical or spiritual force which may discharge itself with fatal effects on whatever comes in contact with it. Accordingly, the isolation of the man-god is quite as necessary for the safety of others as for his own. His magical virtue is, in the strictest sense of the word, contagious. His divinity is a fire which, under proper restraints, confers endless blessings, but, if rashly touched, or allowed to break bounds, burns and destroys what it touches. Hence the disastrous effects supposed to attend a breach of taboo. The offender has thrust his hand into the divine fire, which shrivels up and consumes him on the spot. The Nubas, for example, who inhabit the wooded and fertile range of Jebel Nuba in eastern Africa, believe that they would die if they entered the house of their priestly king. However, they can evade the penalty of their intrusion by bearing the left shoulder and getting the king to lay his hand on it. And were any man to sit on a stone which the king has consecrated to his own use, the transgressor would die within the year. 
The Kazembes of Angola regard their king as so holy that no one can touch him without being killed by the magical power which pervades his sacred person. But since contact with him is sometimes unavoidable, they have devised a means whereby the sinner can escape with his life. Kneeling down before the king, he touches the back of the royal hand with the back of his own, then snaps his fingers. Afterwards he lays the palm of his hand on the palm of the king's hand, then snaps his fingers again. This ceremony is repeated four or five times, and averts the imminent danger of death. In Tonga it was believed that if any one fed himself with his own hands, after touching the sacred person of a superior chief, or anything that belonged to him, he would swell up and die. The sanctity of the chief, like a virulent poison, infected the hands of his inferior, and, being communicated through them to the food, proved fatal to the eater. A commoner who had incurred this danger could disinfect himself by performing a certain ceremony, which consisted in touching the sole of a chief's foot with the palm and back of each of his hands, and afterwards rinsing his hands in water. If there was no water near, he rubbed his hands with the juicy stem of a plantain or banana. After that he was free to feed himself with his own hands, without danger of being attacked by the malady which would otherwise follow from eating with tabooed or sanctified hands. But until the ceremony of expiation or disinfection had been performed, if he wished to eat, he had either to get someone to feed him, or else to go down on his knees and pick up the food from the ground with his mouth like a beast. He might not even use a toothpick himself, but might guide the hand of another person holding the toothpick. The Tongans were subject to induration of the liver and certain forms of scrofula, which they often attributed to a failure to perform the requisite expiation, after having inadvertently touched a chief or his belongings. Hence they often went through the ceremony as a precaution, without knowing they had done anything to call for it. The king of Tonga could not refuse to play his part in the rite, by presenting his foot to such as desired to touch it, even when they applied to him at an inconvenient time. A fat, unwieldy king, who perceived his subjects approaching with this intention, while he chanced to be taking his walks abroad, has been sometimes seen to waddle as fast as his legs could carry him out of their way, in order to escape the importunate and not wholly disinterested expression of their homage. If any one fancied he might have already unwittingly eaten with tabooed hands, he sat down before the chief, and taking the chief's foot, pressed it against his own stomach, that the food in his belly might not injure him, and that he might not swell up and die. Since scrofula was regarded by the Tongans as a result of eating with tabooed hands, we may conjecture that persons who suffered from it among them often resorted to the touch or pressure of the king's foot as a cure for their malady. The analogy of the custom with the old English practice of bringing scrofulous patients to the king to be healed by his touch is sufficiently obvious and suggests, as I have already pointed out elsewhere, that among our own remote ancestors, scrofula may have obtained its name of the king's evil, from a belief, like that of the Tongans, 
that it was caused, as well as cured, by contact with the divine majesty of kings. In New Zealand the dread of the sanctity of chiefs was at least as great as in Tonga. Their ghostly power, derived from an ancestral spirit, diffused itself by contagion over everything they touched, and could strike dead all who rashly or unwittingly meddled with it. For instance, it once happened that a New Zealand chief of high rank and great sanctity had left the remains of his dinner by the wayside. A slave, a stout hungry fellow, coming up after the chief had gone, saw the unfinished dinner, and ate it up without asking questions. Hardly had he finished when he was informed by a horror-stricken spectator that the food of which he had eaten was the chief's. Quotation, I knew the unfortunate delinquent well. He was remarkable for courage, and had signalised himself in the wars of the tribe. But no sooner did he hear the fatal news than he was seized by the most extraordinary convulsions and cramp in the stomach, which never ceased till he died, about sundown the same day. He was a strong man in the prime of life, and if any Pakeha, European, freethinker, should have said he was not killed by the tapu of the chief, which had been communicated to the food by contact, he would have been listened to with feelings of contempt for his ignorance and inability to understand plain and direct evidence. End of quotation. This is not a solitary case. A Maori woman, having eaten of some fruit, and being afterwards told that the fruit had been taken from a tabooed place, exclaimed that the spirit of the chief, whose sanctity had been thus profaned, would kill her. This was in the afternoon, and next day, by twelve o'clock, she was dead. A Maori chief's tinder-box was once the means of killing several persons, for, having been lost by him, and found by some men who used it to light their pipes, they died of fright on learning to whom it had belonged. So, too, the garments of a high New Zealand chief will kill anyone else who wears them. A chief was observed by a missionary to throw down a precipice a blanket, which he found too heavy to carry. Being asked by the missionary why he did not leave it on a tree for the use of a future traveller, the chief replied that, It was the fear of its being taken by another which caused him to throw it where he did, for, if it were worn, his tapu, that is, his spiritual power communicated by contact to the blanket and through the blanket to the man, would kill the person. For a similar reason, a Maori chief would not blow a fire with his mouth, for his sacred breath would communicate its sanctity to the fire, which would pass it on to the pot on the fire, which would pass it on to the meat in the pot, which would pass it on to the man who ate the meat, which was in the pot, which stood on the fire, which was breathed by the chief, so that the eater infected by the chief's breath, conveyed through these intermediaries, would surely die. Thus, in the Polynesian race, to which the Maoris belong, superstition erected round the persons of a sacred chief, a real, though at the same time purely imaginary barrier, to transgress which actually entailed the death of the transgressor whenever he became aware of what he had done. This fatal power of the imagination working through superstitious terrors is by no means confined to one race. It appears to be common among savages. 
For example, among the Aborigines of Australia, a native will die after the infliction of even the most superficial wound, if only he believes that the weapon which inflicted the wound had been sung over and thus endowed with magical virtue. He simply lies down, refuses food, and pines away. Similarly, among some of the Indian tribes of Brazil, if the medicine man predicted the death of any one who had offended him, the wretch took to his hammock instantly, in such full expectation of dying, that he would neither eat nor drink, and the prediction was a sentence which faith effectually executed. 2. Mourners tabooed. Thus, regarding his sacred chiefs and kings as charged with a mysterious spiritual force, which, so to say, explodes at contact, the savage naturally ranks them among the dangerous classes of society, and imposes upon them the same sort of restraints that he lays on manslayers, menstruous women, and other persons whom he looks upon with a certain fear and horror. For example, sacred kings and priests in Polynesia were not allowed to touch food with their hands, and had therefore to be fed by others, and, as we have just seen, their vessels, garments, and other property might not be used by others on pain of disease and death. Now precisely the same observances are exacted by some savages from girls at their first menstruation, women after childbirth, homicides, mourners, and all persons who have come into contact with the dead. Thus, for example, to begin with the last class of persons, among the Maoris, any one who had handled a corpse, helped to convey it to the grave, or touched a dead man's bones, was cut off from all intercourse and almost all communication with mankind. He could not enter any house or come into contact with any person or thing, without utterly bedeviling them. He might not even touch food with his hands, which had become so frightfully tabooed or unclean as to be quite useless. Food would be set for him on the ground, and he would then sit or kneel down, and, with his hands carefully held behind his back, would gnaw at it as best he could. In some cases he would be fed by another person, who, with outstretched arm, contrived to do it without touching the tabooed man. But the feeder was himself subject to many severe restrictions, little less onerous than those which were imposed upon the other. In almost every populous village there lived a degraded wretch, the lowest of the low, who earned a sorry pittance by thus waiting upon the defiled. Clad in rags, daubed from head to foot with red ochre and stinking shark oil, always solitary and silent, generally old, haggard and wizened, often half-crazed, he might be seen sitting motionless all day, apart from the common path or thoroughfare of the village, gazing with lacklustre eyes on the busy doings in which he might never take a part. Twice a day a dole of food would be thrown on the ground before him, to munch as well as he could without the use of his hands, and at night, huddling his greasy tatters about him, he would crawl into some miserable lair of leaves and refuse, where, dirty, cold and hungry, he passed, in broken ghost-haunted slumbers, a wretched night, as a prelude to another wretched day, 
such was the only human being deemed fit to associate at arm's length with one who had paid the last offices of respect and friendship to the dead and when the dismal term of his seclusion being over the mourner was about to mix with his fellows once more all the dishes he had used in his seclusion were diligently smashed and all the garments he had worn were carefully thrown away, lest they should spread the contagion of his defilement among others, just as the vessels and clothes of sacred kings and chiefs are destroyed or cast away for a similar reason. So complete in these respects is the analogy which the savage traces between the spiritual influences that emanate from divinities and from the dead, between the odour of sanctity and the stench of corruption. The rule which forbids persons who have been in contact with the dead to touch food with their hands would seem to have been universal in Polynesia. Thus, in Samoa, those who attended the deceased were most careful not to handle food, and for days were fed by others as if they were helpless infants. Baldness and the loss of teeth were supposed to be the punishments inflicted by the household god if they violated the rule. Again, in Tonga, no person can touch a dead chief without being tabooed for ten lunar months, except chiefs, who are only tabooed for three, four, or five months, according to the superiority of the dead chief. Except, again, it be the body of Tuitonga, the great divine chief, and then even the greatest chief would be tabooed ten months. During the time a man is tabooed, he must not feed himself with his own hands, but must be fed by somebody else. He must not even use a toothpick himself, but must guide another person's hand holding the toothpick. If he is hungry and there is no one to feed him, he must go down upon his hands and knees and pick up his victuals with his mouth. And if he infringes upon any of these rules, it is firmly expected that he will swell up and die. Among the Shuswap of British Columbia, widows and widowers in mourning are secluded and forbidden to touch their own head or body. The cups and cooking vessels which they use may be used by no one else. They must build a sweat-house beside a creek, sweat there all night and bathe regularly, after which they must rub their bodies with branches of spruce. The branches may not be used more than once, and when they have served their purpose they are stuck into the ground all round the hut. No hunter would come near such mourners, for their presence is unlucky. If their shadow were to fall on anyone, he would be taken ill at once. They employ thorn-bushes for bed and pillow, in order to keep away the ghost of the deceased, and thorn-bushes are also laid all around their beds. This last precaution shows clearly what the spiritual danger is which leads to the exclusion of such persons from ordinary society. It is simply a fear of the ghost who is supposed to be hovering near them. In the Mekeo district of British New Guinea, a widower loses all his civil rights and becomes a social outcast, an object of fear and horror, shunned by all. He may not cultivate a garden, nor show himself in public, nor traverse the village, nor walk on the roads and paths. Like a wild beast he must skulk in the long grass and the bushes, and if he sees or hears any one coming, especially a woman, he must hide behind a tree or a thicket. 
If he wishes to fish or hunt, he must do it alone and at night. If he would consult any one, even the missionary, he does so by stealth and at night. He seems to have lost his voice and speaks only in whispers. Were he to join a party of fishers or hunters, his presence would bring misfortune on them. The ghost of his dead wife would frighten away the fish or the game. He goes about everywhere and at all times armed with a tomahawk to defend himself, not only against wild boars in the jungle, but against the dreaded spirit of his departed spouse, who would do him an ill turn if she could, for all the souls of the dead are malignant, and their only delight is to harm the living. 3. Women tabooed at menstruation and childbirth. In general, we may say that the prohibition to use the vessels, garments, and so forth of certain persons, and the effects supposed to follow an infraction of the rule, are exactly the same whether the persons to whom the things belong are sacred, or what we might call unclean and polluted. As the garments which have been touched by a sacred chief kill those who handle them, so do the things which have been touched by a menstruous woman. An Australian black fellow, who discovered that his wife had lain on his blanket at her menstrual period, killed her and died of terror himself within a fortnight. Hence Australian women at these times are forbidden under pain of death to touch anything that men use, or even to walk on a path that any man frequents. They are also secluded at childbirth, and all vessels used by them during their seclusion are burnt. In Uganda the pots which a woman touches, while the impurity of childbirth or of menstruation is on her, should be destroyed. Spears and shields defiled by her touch are not destroyed, but only purified. Among all the Dene and most other American tribes, hardly any other being was the object of so much dread as a menstruating woman. As soon as signs of that condition made themselves apparent in a young girl, she was carefully segregated from all but female company, and had to live by herself in a small hut away from the gaze of the villagers or of the male members of the roving band. While in that awful state she had to abstain from touching anything belonging to a man, or the spoils of any venison or other animal, lest she would thereby pollute the same, and condemn the hunters to failure, owing to the anger of the game thus slighted. Dried fish formed her diet, and cold water, absorbed through a drinking tube, was her only beverage. Moreover, as the very sight of her was dangerous to society, a special skin bonnet, with fringes falling over her face down to her breast, hid her from the public gaze, even some time after she had recovered her normal state. Among the Bribri Indians of Costa Rica, a menstruous woman is regarded as unclean. The only plates she may use for her food are banana leaves, which, when she has done with them, she throws away in some sequestered spot, for were a cow to find them and eat them, the animal would waste away and perish and she drinks out of a special vessel for a like reason, because if any one drank out of the same cup after her, he would surely die. Among many peoples, similar restrictions are imposed on women in childbed, and apparently for similar reasons. At such periods, women are supposed to be in a dangerous condition, which would infect any person or thing they might touch. 
Hence they are put into quarantine until, with the recovery of their health and strength, the imaginary danger has passed away. Thus, in Tahiti, a woman after childbirth was secluded for a fortnight or three weeks in a temporary hut erected on sacred ground. During the time of her seclusion she was debarred from touching provisions and had to be fed by another. Further, if any one else touched the child at this period, he was subjected to the same restrictions as the mother until the ceremony of her purification had been performed. Similarly, in the island of Kadiak, off Alaska, a woman about to be delivered retires to a miserable low hovel built of reeds, where she must remain for twenty days after the birth of her child, whatever the reason may be. And she is considered so unclean that no one will touch her, and food is reached to her on sticks. The Bribri Indians regard the pollution of childbed as much more dangerous even than that of menstruation. When a woman feels her time approaching, she informs her husband, who makes haste to build a hut for her in a lonely spot. There she must live alone, holding no converse with anybody save her mother or another woman. After her delivery, the medicine man purifies her by breathing on her and laying an animal, it matters not what, upon her. But even this ceremony only mitigates her uncleanness into a state considered to be equivalent to that of a menstruous woman, and for a full lunar month she must live apart from her housemates, observing the same rules with regard to eating and drinking as at her monthly periods. The case is still worse, the pollution is still more deadly, if she has had a miscarriage or has been delivered of a stillborn child. In that case she may not go near a living soul. The mere contact with things she has used is exceedingly dangerous. Her food is handed to her at the end of a long stick. This lasts generally for three weeks, after which she may go home, subject only to the restrictions incident to an ordinary confinement. Some Bantu tribes entertain even more exaggerated notions of the virulent infection spread by a woman who has had a miscarriage and has concealed it. An experienced observer of these people tells us that the blood of childbirth appears to the eye of the South Africans to be tainted with a pollution still more dangerous than that of menstrual fluid. The husband is excluded from the hut for eight days of the lying-in period, chiefly from fear that he might be contaminated by this secretion. He dare not take his child in his arms for the three first months after the birth. But the secretion of childbed is particularly terrible when it is the product of a miscarriage, especially a concealed miscarriage. In this case it is not merely the man who is threatened or killed, it is the whole country, it is the sky itself which suffers. By a curious association of ideas, a physiological fact causes cosmic troubles. As for the disastrous effect which a miscarriage may have on the whole country, I will quote the words of a medicine man and rainmaker of the Bar Pedi tribe. When a woman has had a miscarriage, when she has allowed her blood to flow, and has hidden the child, it is enough to cause the burning winds to blow, and to parch the country with heat. The rain no longer falls, for the country is no longer in order. When the rain approaches the place where the blood is, it will not dare to approach. 
it will fear and remain at a distance. That woman has committed a great fault. She has spoilt the country of the chief, for she has hidden blood which had not yet been well congealed to fashion a man. That blood is taboo. It should never drip on the road. The chief will assemble his men and say to them, Are you in order in your villages? Someone will answer, Such and such a woman was pregnant, and we have not yet seen the child which she has given birth to. Then they go and arrest the woman. They say to her, Show us where you have hidden it. They go and dig at the spot. They sprinkle the hole with a decoction of two sorts of roots, prepared in a special pot. They take a little of the earth of this grave. They throw it into the river. Then they bring back water from the river and sprinkle it where she shed her blood. She herself must wash every day with the medicine. Then the country will be moistened again by rain. Further, we, medicine men, summon the women of the country. We tell them to prepare a ball of the earth which contains the blood. They bring it to us one morning. If we wish to prepare medicine with which to sprinkle the whole country, we crumble this earth to powder. At the end of five days we send little boys and little girls, girls that yet know nothing of women's affairs, and have not yet had relations with men. We put the medicine in the horns of oxen, and these children go to all the fords, to all the entrances of the country. A little girl turns up the soil with her mattock, the others dip a branch in the horn, and sprinkle the inside of the hole, saying, Rain! Rain! So we remove the misfortune which the women have brought on the roads. The rain will be able to come. The country is purified. 4. Warriors tabooed Once more, warriors are conceived by the savage to move, so to say, in an atmosphere of spiritual danger, which constrains them to practice a variety of superstitious observances, quite different in their nature from those rational precautions which, as a matter of course, they adopt against foes of flesh and blood. The general effect of these observances is to place the warrior, both before and after victory, in the same state of seclusion or spiritual quarantine in which, for his own safety, primitive man puts his human gods and other dangerous characters. Thus, when the Maoris went on the war-path, they were sacred or taboo in the highest degree, and they and their friends at home had to observe strictly many curious customs over and above the numerous taboos of ordinary life. They became, in the irreverent language of Europeans, who knew them in the old fighting days, tabooed an inch thick, and as for the leader of the expedition, he was quite unapproachable. Similarly, when the Israelites marched forth to war, they were bound by certain rules of ceremonial purity, identical with rules observed by Maoris and Australian blackfellows on the war-path. The vessels they used were sacred, and they had to practice continence and a custom of personal cleanliness, of which the original motive, if we may judge from the avowed motive of savages who conformed to the same custom, was a fear lest the enemy should obtain the refuse of their persons, and thus be enabled to work their destruction by magic. 
Among some Indian tribes of North America, a young warrior, in his first campaign, had to conform to certain customs, of which two were identical with the observances imposed by the same Indians on girls at their first menstruation. The vessels he ate and drank out of might be touched by no other person, and he was forbidden to scratch his head or any other part of his body with his fingers. If he could not help scratching himself, he had to do it with a stick. The latter rule, like the one which forbids a tabooed person to feed himself with his own fingers, seems to rest on the supposed sanctity or pollution, whichever we choose to call it, of the tabooed hands. Moreover, among these Indian tribes, the men on the war-path had always to sleep at night with their faces turned towards their own country. However uneasy the posture, they might not change it. They might not sit upon the bare ground, nor wet their feet, nor walk on a beaten path if they could help it. When they had no choice but to walk on a path, they sought to counteract the ill effect of doing so by doctoring their legs with certain medicines or charms which they carried with them for the purpose. No member of the party was permitted to step over the legs, hands or body of any other member who chanced to be sitting or lying on the ground, and it was equally forbidden to step over his blanket, gun, tomahawk or anything that belonged to him. If this rule was inadvertently broken, it became the duty of the member whose person or property had been stepped over to knock the other member down, and it was similarly the duty of that other to be knocked down peaceably and without resistance. The vessels out of which the warriors ate their food were commonly small bowls of wood or birch bark, with marks to distinguish the two sides. In marching from home, the Indians invariably drank out of one side of the bowl, and in returning they drank out of the other. When on their way home they came within a day's march of the village, they hung up all their bowls on trees, or threw them away on the prairie, doubtless to prevent their sanctity or defilement from being communicated with disastrous effects to their friends, just as we have seen that the vessels and clothes of the sacred Mikado, of women at childbirth and menstruation, and of persons defiled by contact with the dead, are destroyed or laid aside for a similar reason. The first four times that an Apache Indian goes out on the war-path, he is bound to refrain from scratching his head with his fingers, and from letting water touch his lips. Hence he scratches his head with a stick, and drinks through a hollow reed or cane. Stick and reed are attached to the warrior's belt, and to each other by a leathern thong. The rule not to scratch their heads with their fingers, but to use a stick for the purpose instead, was regularly observed by Ojebways on the war-path. With regard to the Creek Indians and kindred tribes, we are told that they will not cohabit with women while they are out at war, they religiously abstain from every kind of intercourse, even with their own wives, for the space of three days and nights before they go to war, and so after they return home, because they are to sanctify themselves. Among the Barpedi and Barthonga tribes of South Africa, not only have the warriors to abstain from women, but the people left behind in the villages are also bound to continence. 
they think that any incontinence on their part would cause thorns to grow on the ground traversed by the warriors, and that success would not attend the expedition. Why exactly many savages have made it a rule to refrain from women in time of war, we cannot say for certain, but we may conjecture that their motive was a superstitious fear, lest, on the principles of sympathetic magic, close contact with women should infect them with feminine weakness and cowardice. Similarly, some savages imagine that contact with a woman in childbed enervates warriors and enfeebles their weapons. Indeed, the Kayans of central Borneo go so far as to hold that to touch a loom or women's clothes would so weaken a man that he would have no success in hunting, fishing and war. Hence it is not merely sexual intercourse with women that the savage warrior sometimes shuns. He is careful to avoid the sex altogether. Thus among the hill tribes of Assam, not only are men forbidden to cohabit with their wives during or after a raid, but they may not eat food cooked by a woman. Nay, they should not address a word even to their own wives. Once a woman, who unwittingly broke the rule by speaking to her husband while he was under the war taboo, sickened and died when she learnt the awful crime she had committed. End of section 5 End of chapter 20A